Hello and welcome to Podularity, the online books programme that brings you authors and books in a pod. My name is George Miller, and after a gap of a few months, I'm pleased to say that Podularity is back. This programme features an extended version of an interview I did with Donna Dickinson for Blackwell Online. Donna is Emeritus Professor of Medical Ethics and Humanities at the University of London, and author of Body Shopping, Converting Body Parts to Profit, a book which looks at how the human body is being turned into a global commodity to be raided for genes, cells, eggs and organs. Philip Pullman called it alarming and illuminating, and Faye Weldon compared its potential impact on body rights to the impact of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring on the environmental movement in the 1960s. But to start at the beginning, I asked Donna to explain what she meant by body shopping. It describes what I call the unprecedented commercialization of the human body from BC to AD, before conception to after death. And that includes things like the massive global market that's developing in eggs and sperm, which started in the US but is now spread, for example, to Eastern Europe, with uh, instances of women being trafficked for for eggs and, and for sex at the same time. And on the other side, the end, after death, We have things like the Alastair Cook scandal, the way in which Cook's bones and those of 1,800 other people were stolen from a funeral home and were transformed into things like dental veneers. So those are the shocking stories. And I think, you know, we shouldn't lose sight of those. The shock that that provokes, I think, is healthy. But on the other hand, I'm actually more concerned in the book and personally with the more ordinary instances, things like the banking of babies' umbilical cord blood or the patenting of human genes so that one in five human genes is now the subject of a patent. And this has direct knock-on effects for our clinical care in that it's much harder for us to get cheaper medicines if pharmaceutical companies that hold patents on the genes manage to block cheaper alternatives. So you know, we can start with the, the horror stories and I think you know, we shouldn't lose sight of them. But it's a much bigger phenomenon than just that. I did want to to talk a little bit about the Alistair Cook's um, case, which you mentioned, because I have to confess, my own ignorance was such that I didn't realise there was a trade, an illegal, illicit trade in in bones, and that a nonagenarian's bones would be ransacked in the United States in you know in the, in the last few years. Well, it really is a horrible story. Alistair Cook, you know, the author of the Letter from America, the well-known journalist in death himself became a letter from America, a sort of warning of the the worst of body shopping. As his body was lying in a New York funeral parlour, he had died at the age of 94 and had metastatic cancer, cancer that had spread. So this was particularly shocking for that reason. As his body was lying in this funeral parlour, it was ransacked, as you say, for the thigh bones. And this happened to as I say, something like 1,800 people. It was a New York criminal ring headed by someone called Master Marino, who's now been indicted and, in fact, sentenced to, I think, 18 years in prison. So eventually he was apprehended, but in the course of his crimes and those of the rest of the ring, 1,800 other families suffered. And the uses that can be made of bones are really quite extensive. (laughs) So some of these wound up as dental veneers, in the UK through a firm in Swindon, which was identified as unwittingly having imported these products. And that meant then that they in turn passed to a number of UK hospitals. Now, most of those hospitals came forward and said, OK, we're not importing any more bones from this firm. 
and we are alerting all of our patients. Cook's daughter, Susan Kittredge, said, imagine if you knew that you had received bone transplants from a nonagenarian who died of a cancer which might conceivably have contaminated his bones. And she said, you couldn't run away from yourself fast enough. And I think that did sum up a lot of the hospital's reactions. On the other hand, there were three London teaching hospitals that refused to alert their patients. So it is possible that there is still some of that bone out there. So not only was the bone obtained by the most despicable and fraudulent means, but the use to which it was put was also deceptive and fraudulent. Yes, I mean, it wasn't fraudulent in the sense of deliberate fraud by the hospitals or indeed by the firm in Swindon, but it was, I think unprecedented in the the number of uses to which it could be put. Um, It's not just veneers, there's all sorts of uses that can be made of bone paste and so forth. And I think most people are surprised by the the way in which biotechnology is so endlessly inventive. Now, many of those uses are beneficial. And, you know, those are a good thing. And I'm certainly not anti-science. I'm very much pro-science. I've spent most of my career working in medical schools and health faculties. So, I also have you know, a lot of links with things like the Royal Colleges. Um, I'm very much pro-science, but I am very much aware that the excesses of biotechnology are... There. It's always possible that there can be such excesses because the, the field proceeds so much faster than the law can keep up with. Mm. So there's always a regulatory gap. And part of what I'm trying to do in body shopping is to show that we can regulate. We mustn't just say oh, it's just impossible, it's too complicated, it's too fast-moving. Or, well, why should we regulate? You know, Let's just assume that it's science, so it's a good thing. Well, I think that's a bit naive. So I am trying to show examples from other countries. France, for example, is one of the countries that actually regulates quite successfully in Europe. And trying to show ways in which we can regulate and we can take a more proactive and balanced attitude. We needn't just be afraid and stymied by body shopping. And the purpose of the book is not just to you know, provide a series of shock horror stories. It's actually also to suggest ways in which we can regulate this. Mm. Now, just to finish with the Alistair Cook story, but to, to use it to open up a bigger question, I think most people who lack a medical or legal background would naturally feel revulsion and horror at what happened and know that something wrong had been done. But they might be hard press to say exactly what point of law had been infringed there. And that brings up the whole issue of ownership of the body, property rights in the body, to whom body parts belong. And your book is very interesting about that. Can you say a little bit about how the law stands at the moment as regards ownership? Yes, I think actually people are more shocked when they find out what the legal position is (laughs) than they are even by the horrors of things like the Cook case. Um, The Cook case is perhaps not the very best example of this because it's someone else's body. That is, it's the disposition of the body after death. But in in terms of your own body, this is what I think is really surprising to most people. And that is that you don't actually legally own your body. You don't own your body, that is, in the sense that tissue taken from it and used afterwards is yours to dispose of as you see fit. The law traditionally took the view that tissue, once it had left the body, was what was called no one's thing. And it took that view because, traditionally, the tissue wasn't of any value. It's modern biotechnology that has given it this value. The Cook example is just one of many. That, in turn, means that the law is, as I said before, lagging behind what biotechnology can do. 
So that doctrine that it's no one's thing has actually been tested in a number of cases, including one of a man called John Moore. John Moore was a 31-year-old American who developed a form of leukemia and had to have his spleen removed. Now, there was absolutely no doubt that the spleen had to come out. It was 20 times the normal size. So again, you think of the traditional position in the law that the benefit to you as the patient lay in having the diseased tissue removed. Well, there was no question that that was a benefit to John Moore. But after the splenectomy, after the spleen was removed, he was asked to come back to have other tissue taken. So hair, blood, sperm, all sorts of other tissue was taken. And he was told this was necessary for his treatment. He was also asked to sign forms that said, I hereby renounce any further interest in this tissue. And he kept asking the surgeon, well, why do I have to come down to Los Angeles? He lived in Seattle to do this. And, you know, do I really have to have it all? And the surgeon kept saying, yes, yes, yes. And sending him more and more forms saying, I renounce all interest in my tissue. And finally, he got very suspicious and he consulted a lawyer. He refused to sign one of the forms and he consulted a lawyer. And he found that without his knowledge and certainly without his consent, his tissue had been turned into a $3 billion cell line. And that was because the tissue had unusual value. Most of our tissue wouldn't be worth that much. But Moore had very active what are called T cells, that is their immune cells. So he had a very active immune system. And these cells could be turned into a sort of bottomless porridge pot of <laughs> valuable material, an immortal cell line, and indeed they had been, and also a patent had been taken out on the cells. Moore went to court to try to establish rights in the patent and in the cell line and he wasn't so much concerned about the money. He was really concerned. He was angry about the fraud and about the fact that his consent had not been sought and about his human dignity or whatever you want to call it. Now, he succeeded in establishing that his, his consent had not been obtained and that he had been lied to. But he failed to establish that he had any property rights in the $3 billion cell line. And there have been a number of cases since then which have mostly reinforced that. I say mostly because in the last month or two, there was a case in Bristol involving some men who had their sperm banked before treatment for cancer, and the hospital where it was banked failed to freeze it correctly. And they did manage to go to court and establish that they did actually have a property right in that tissue. That is the first time in English law or American law, common law, that we have had any case like that. But there's no commercial value in that tissue. So I think it might have been a different case if it had been more like more where there was a $3 billion cell line. And you report the Supreme Court judgment in the Moore case, uh, where the judges, I think, were split. But what came out of that, to me, was that the these very senior legal people had a rather naive idea about research and profit and the way that whole business worked. And in fact, the rhetoric of the biotech companies had been quite successful in putting across a line Yes, I think that's very true. This was the California Supreme Court. And you're right that most of them took the rather utilitarian practical line that we have to allow the biotech companies free reign. And that will indirectly benefit us all in the long run, because if they have enough profits to invest, then they will discover cures. Now, that is a very naive view. But we heard it even last year when we were having the Human Fertilization and Embryology Act debates we did hear quite a lot of very strong views expressed, for example, about cybrids, the idea of using animal eggs in stem cell research. And the idea was, well, we shouldn't regulate this 
because we should just let the scientists do what they do best, unimpeded, and they will eventually find cures that will benefit all of us. So it's wrong for us to stick our noses in. There are a couple of problems with this. First of all, other countries don't take this view to anything like the extent we do. We are really sort of notorious in Europe. So I think it is naive because biotech is very, very big business. And most scientists who get the backing of biotech companies may find that they also have public money and that there can be a conflict. There can be a conflict between what the biotech companies want them to develop and what the public money backs. Most discoveries are, for example, the human genome that was entirely funded, almost entirely funded by public money. And yet you then get, you get private companies coming in and staking private patents on particular genes. Now, this seems to me, again, to be something that is ignored in this general rhetoric about how we must just allow the companies to do what they want because it's their investment. It's not, actually, in many cases. It's public investment. And therefore, we, the public, have a right, I think, to regulate it not least because the privatization of the public, and indeed this is very relevant at the moment, isn't it, with the banks and so forth, you know, we're a little more skeptical about the argument that private companies can do no wrong. Uh, the privatization of the human genome, which again is an aspect of body shopping, does mean that again researchers can't access genes that they need to do the research that is going to benefit all of us. One of the best examples is uh, Herceptin, which is a drug which our NHS wanted to prescribe for women who have certain forms of breast cancer. Not all breast cancers respond to Herceptin, but about a quarter do, and it can be really crucial for those one in four women. Herceptin targets a particular gene. That's how it works. That particular gene was patented by a particular company, and therefore that company was able to block other companies from doing research on that gene without a license. And of course, it's not in their interest to grant a license to another mm -hmm. company. So that meant in turn that the NHS was having to pay an inflated price, monopoly price for Herceptin. That meant in turn that NICE, the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, was saying that women who needed Herceptin couldn't have it. And that was presented as, well, it's just a fact of life. These drugs are expensive, but it wasn't actually a fact of life. It was a fact of the way in which the patent system works. Mm -hmm. And I think that can be regulated and, and indeed should be regulated. It seemed to me, reading the book, there was a very close parallel with, with GM technology and, and food, because there the companies say, you know, give us the patent rights and we will feed the world. And in the case of medicine, they're saying, give us the patent rights and we will cure the world of all its ills. Yeah, I think that's a very good parallel. And we've perhaps heard more about genetically modified foods. Mm -hmm. And perhaps the campaign there has been somewhat more successful. I would quite like to think that maybe body shopping might inaugurate a similar campaign in terms of patenting. And indeed, it's not just me. There's lots of people out there working in this area. So I think that, that is, it's a good parallel. Um, I think there are you know, groups who are, are already doing things like opposing the patent on, again, two other breast cancer genes, BRCA1 and BRCA2, which are implicated again in some breast cancers. And again, there a patent is held by a U.S. firm called Myriad Genetics, which has succeeded in the U.S. in managing to impose a $3,000 test fee on anyone who wants it, a license fee, on labs, that is, that want to perform that test. Now, in the, U in the U.K. and in Europe in general, there have been activist groups who have been successful in preventing that. 
So again, I think this is actually quite hopeful. We do not need to be passive about body shopping. We can prevent it. And there have been court cases in the European patent course, courts which have successfully managed to stave this off so far. So if we're aware of it, and you know, maybe again, that might be a function of my book. If we're aware of it, if we have the ammunition and we know what's going on, then we can do what the protesters with the GM crops have successfully done because they knew what was going on. I wondered if you thought that one impediment to progress, though, was public understanding of science. It's very easy for the public to be dazzled by this in either direction, to think it's, it's, it's marvellous or it's, it's the work of the devil. And I wondered if you thought, in addition to that, whether our sort of ethical toolkit, you know, you talk about Lockean views of the, of, the, um, of the body and you talk about Marx's views of exploitation. Do you think we need to evolve new ethical tools or do you think we just have to apply them to, to this rather unforeseen circumstance, you know, that Marx and Locke could never have imagined the value being derived from, from the human body? I think we do need to derive new concepts, but I think the very first thing we need to do is to stand back and say, this is not a simplistic black and white battle between religion, let's say, and science. And a lot of people would lump ethics in with religion. I mean, that's actually quite debatable. But last year, again, at the time that the Human Fertilization and Embryology Act was being debated in Parliament, I actually wrote an article in the Sunday Times in which I sort of drew up this image of the Bishop of Glasgow, who'd been talking about Frankenstein science in one corner, you know, wearing (laughs) white trunks and a halo or something like that, and science in the other corner, I think represented by Robert Winston or some some such image. We did get this sort of divide again, you know, people who are avid followers of Richard Dawkins, that's another sort of simplistic way of looking at it, might possibly see science as utterly opposed to ethics and religion. It seems to me this really is a very simplistic and and not at all helpful way of looking at things. We need to stand back and say, well, science also has its own ethical views, and those views tend to be in favour of a sort of utilitarian kind of ethics, a way of saying if research, for example, can be uh, pursued most easily by being unimpeded, then let's do that. Let's justify it by the ends rather than a Kantian way of saying, well, let's look also at the means. Mm. Are there certain means that are not justified, whatever the, whatever the ends may be? So that is, I think, the first thing that we need to do is to stand back and say this is not a battle between science and religion. Those of us who are in the ethics corner, which may or may not be the religion corner, mm. you know, you can be a secular bioethicist and still have doubts about ethics and mm. science, about some of these scientific developments. Those of us who are in the ethics corner also have a foot in the science and medicine corner, at least I do. I mean, I sit on ethics committees of Royal College medical bodies and so forth. So I think that's a really unhelpful divide, and I would really like to see us get rid of that first. If we can then go on from there to look at concepts that are useful in philosophy and ethics and maybe religion, so things like exploitation, a lot of us, I think, might have a gut reaction that Moore, for example, was exploited. And yeah, I think he, he probably was exploited. But what exactly was, was wrong with what was done with Moore's tissue? Was it merely the fact that he wasn't paid? If that's the case, then all we have to do is pay, for example, egg donors a good you know, compensation. Pay them a salary. Call it work and pay them a salary. Now, I think there are real problems with that because... 
first of all, we don't simply say in other forms of work that if you've paid someone, that's the end of the story. We have health and safety regulations at work and so forth. We have other forms of regulation. So we shouldn't, I think, just say if women want to be paid to donate eggs, then it's all right to take up to 70 eggs at one time, which has been documented in one U.S. case where women can be paid for their eggs. Uh, we don't worry about it because they've agreed to the risks. I think that's really not a useful way of looking at it either. So what's exploitative about that situation? The women are being paid, unlike more. What's wrong with it? And that, I think, is where you get into this whole question of commodification. Again, Marx is quite useful for that, and Marx is quite useful about exploitation. So is it that what's wrong is that the women are not being paid the surplus value, that is the difference between the amount of work they put in and the final cost of the product, that would be a Marxist analysis of it? Or is it is that there's something wrong with paying for eggs in the first place? And there would be philosophers, Kant would be one of them, for example, who would say, actually, the human body shouldn't be turned into a commodity in the first place. There is something about human dignity that makes that wrong. Now, that in itself is a position that you can argue with. You can say, well, does that apply to your hair clippings? Does it apply to your nail clippings? You know, where does it stop? Does it apply to all parts of the human body? Is it the body as such? And I think that is a difficult position to, to defend fully. But on the other hand, I think the other alternative 180 degree opposite position is even more difficult to defend, which is that the body is just a thing like any other thing. That's obviously not so. It's not the same in that I'm embodied. I live in my body. I can live without any of the things that I'm surrounded by here in this room, but I can't live without my body. So it's obviously not a thing like other things. And again, the French philosopher Merleau-Ponty says, if the body is a thing, it is a thing in a very deep and different sense from them. And I think that is that has got to be true. So yes, I think it would be useful to go back to your original point, to think of ways in which we can reconceptualize the body and to use some philosophical tools. But I would also think just on a practical level, we could go a long way simply by saying ethics and religion are not opposed to science and science is not immune to ethical debates. In the final chapter of the book, you posit two frameworks for looking at this ethical question, which I thought were very interesting and fertile. And one looks at the, the commons, the loss of the commons, which we, we know from other forms of you know copyright and ownership, and the, the movement from public to private. And the other, um, which is perhaps more unfamiliar, was this notion that in some way the developments are expressive of a fear of the feminization of the body. And I wondered if you could maybe say a little bit about those two things in tandem. Yes, the idea about the commons was put forward some years ago in relation to patenting. So again, to go back to the fact that one in five genes is now the subject of a patent, many people feel that the human genome should be like a public good and that that's what's wrong with patenting the genome. It's not simply the profits that can be made, but it's also the intrusion on the a public sphere that should belong to all of us. And therefore, it's wrong when we want to pursue research, for example, on the gene that's targeted in Herceptin, if that's blocked because it's no longer part of the commons. And I think that's kind of a nice argument because it has resonance, particularly in this country, with the enclosure of the commons and the way in which that was resisted in the 18th and 19th century. For example, here on Otmore, we had the Otmore rioters who actually tried to stop Otmore being enclosed. So I think that's a more familiar idea, and I think it is quite a powerful idea, which has been used, for example, by the 
GM crops um, activists quite successfully to say that things like um, Madagascar periwinkle or basmati rice or indigenous cures, herbal cures of various sorts, indigenous medicines, are traditional knowledge and that is a sort of global commons and that should not be enclosed by private firms who take out a patent on, for example, periwinkle because it's useful in the treatment of Hodgkin's disease or the genes particularly, the genome of the periwinkle. So I think that's a good argument and I think it's actually quite a powerful metaphor. I'm also keen, though, on one that I've developed myself, which is why it's less familiar, uh, and that is the idea that, yes, it's true that there is a commons, but when we think about it, why are we particularly concerned about patenting and not things like the way in which women's tissue in, for example, egg sale and the use of women's tissue in stem cell technologies or umbilical cord blood, again, women's tissue, why has that not come out so much in the debate? And I think we really ought to consider whether this commons has, whether it's gendered and whether we're more concerned about types of intrusions that affect both men and women equally, as patenting does. Why have we not, why have we not been concerned with the fact that we've got these quite large numbers of Eastern European women being targeted for their eggs? Why are we not concerned with the fact that, as I was reading yesterday... There's something like 20 clinics in the Ukraine alone where surrogate mothers are being hired by Western couples at knockdown rates to to carry their children uh, with very few legal protections. So what I've tried to develop is the idea that, in a sense, what we're looking at with body shopping is a sort of feminization of all bodies. And I don't mean that we all have female bodies, literally, biologically. What I mean is that all bodies are now being treated as open access. And when we think about the ways in which, for example, we, we all know that certain products like cars have always used or traditionally used women's bodies to, to sell the products. We know that there is a link between commerce and women's bodies. And the idea that feminization of all bodies is something that we ought to be careful about, I think could actually be a useful adjunct to the commons argument. The commons argument doesn't look at the way in which the bodies are male and female, doesn't look at the feminization angle, and the feminization argument really doesn't have the historical reach of the commons argument. So you can run them together. They're not opposed. And I think it is important that whether or not people accept those particular metaphors, those particular models, that we do think about new ways of looking at these new developments. And those are two possible models that I think are new and effective. And maybe finally, I can I could ask you, if people read your book and take on board the issues and are concerned about it, what do you think the best way for them to, to make their, their, you know, to express their feelings and, and to help to influence uh, change and legislation? Well, I think for a start, people can respond to the consultations. For example, when we had the consultation on the HFEA Act last year, I think it is important that people do continue to respond to the consultations, which we do have in this country. And, you know, that's a good thing. Um, I think it is also important that people don't feel that they can't understand these developments. They're not, they really aren't too difficult. And there are some quite good websites out there. For example, the activist organization, The Corner House, has a very good website. They were also the ones who were involved in helping to unmask the BAE scandal. So they're, they're very publicly aware, and I've been doing some work with them. They have a website 
which actually has a sort of explanatory position papers on some of the different technologies. So, you know, I think people could read those. Um, I think something like Ben Goldacre's Bad Science is also quite accessible. So I think there are a number of ways in which people who are interested needn't feel that, well, if you've got a humanities background, I mean, I have a humanities background, I'm a philosopher, um, that you can't understand these developments. There are some very good treatments out there. Uh, I'm hoping maybe body shopping might be one of them, which do enable people to be more informed. And I think it is important that that they should be so and that they not take the line particularly that science mustn't be questioned. You know, we can all question it. It doesn't mean that we have to be rabidly anti-science. That's not the same thing. But we just have to be aware enough to be able to ask the right questions. Donna Dickinson. Body Shopping is available now in paperback. This podcast was an extended version of an interview originally produced for Blackwell Online. You can find my podcasts there at blackwell.co.uk. And Podularity podcasts are available on iTunes, where it's quick, easy and free to subscribe. Until next time, thank you for listening and goodbye.